0: Good morning. It's great to have all of you here this morning. Uh, I do, before we get into anything else, um, I, I'd i like uh, Mike and Bree to come forward, if they would. Mike and Bree head up our youth ministry program. And, uh, you know, as many of you know, I've done youth ministry for <clears throat> almost 100 years. So uh, I, I, and I have to tell you, I've never seen youth ministry to be more challenging today. And I, I, I don't say that lightly. Really, it's extraordinarily challenging in terms of what you have to do. And so, uh, in order to get to kids, um, I, I, I really can recall when I was a junior and senior high school. I can recall campus life directors going through the local school with handouts, flyers, saying that there would be a youth group <clears throat> meeting at the Roll R Skating Rink in Washington, PA. 800 kids would show up. 800 kids would show up. It would be packed. Um, and today, sometimes you're doing well if you get eight kids to show up. Just because of all of the kinds of competition and the things that were against us. So anyway, these are two very dedicated, very diligent people right here, uh, who 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 give a lot of time they don't have to give, a lot of effort that they're not paid for, <clears throat> and um, and, they ha- and they have and they have some real challenges. And so, first of all, I just want to say thank you for what you do and how much you how hard you work for the kids in our church as well as the kids that are in this community. And uh, what you do is vital. And, uh, and we are not going to give up on kids. We're just not going to give up on them. And so, and my take is, you know, in a war, one of the primary strategies in a war is to, te- is to find a way to keep the country you are in opposition to, to keep them from recruiting more soldiers who will fight you in that war. Does this make sense to you? So, Satan, one of his primary strategies is to cut in on new recruits that would fight him in the future. Those new recruits happen to be our young adults, our kids. And they are in the way of that. And we will be in the way of that. So, what I'd like to do is I'd like to have some intercessory prayer. And I'd like the elders to come forward. And I just would, would you just pray that God would bless them, give them wisdom? give them encouragement, and just surround them with his presence so that they can continue on in the work. And they've not complained about it. This is just a a conclusion that we as elders uh, drew. We thought, well, you guys need prayer. So um, in fact, why don't you go down to the altar there and we'll just surround you uh, and pray uh, for you now. So elders, if you would come forward. And by the way, uh, as we do this, uh, in the future, when we have prayer concerns, we are no longer going to do the prayer concerns at the end of the service. We want to include the prayer concerns as a part of the worship service. So, if you have a particular prayer concern that you want the elders to pray for, you want it to be anointed for, this is the time of the service that would happen. Okay? So, we we, we really want you to take full advantage of that. So, um, uh, each of you, if you would pray, and then I'll I'll close in prayer. Okay? Let's pray. Everyone, pray with us. Father God, we just thank you here this morning. We we lift up Bree and Mike to you, Father God. We're so thankful for for what they do for for us here in our congregation and the youth of this of this community and the church. And we just ask your blessing on them, Lord God, and and continue to bring people and young ones to them, to so that so that they can continue to minister to those folks and just. Lead, lead the young ones in the right direction, Lord, and help to battle the enemy who's always trying to inter- intervene between us. And just ask you to put your blessing and strong arm on them, Lord. Father, we just ask <coughs> you to just give Brian, and Mike the opportunities, Lord, to speak to the kids in this neighborhood and, and the kids from this church, Father, that you would prepare hearts that you would um, stop those in the, in the pathway of these kids that distract them from this church and from this from this couple. Lord, we pray that you would just work in the hearts of the children in this neighborhood and bring them, Lord. Let them hear the, hear the truth and hear your word. And we just ask that you bind Satan's powers in all ways, Lord, that he cannot interfere with their ministry. We'll give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Father, we continue to pray for these two that have... Uh committed ourselves to do this service for your work. Lord, just ask that you would uh, guide them and direct them in every direction and open the doors that uh, they need to go through. And, uh, Lord, we just pray that you put your holy hedge around them and protect them yes. from any mm. enemy mm. attacks. From, the enemy you, mm. uh, Jesus. You would have no uh, no influence on, negative influence on anything that they're trying to do. That only you would be glorified through it. Our Father God, all of us this morning here, every one of us in this church sanctuary, lift up Mike and Bree. And we just pray on their behalf, may Your Holy Spirit empower them, give them wisdom, lift them up and encourage them, bring young adults to them, and Lord, just uh, enable them to do the kind of ministry that You have called them to. May this church, in that way, always be a light in a world that's growing increasingly dark in the lives of our kids. We will not surrender the light. Help us, we pray, Lord, to empower Mike and Bree as they continue on in their ministry in the lives of our young adults, both in this church and in this community. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, your divine power and guidance your encouragement and your love in their lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. you Thanks. Now, while they're there, while, while I'm down here, I just wanted to say to you we had these uh, altars re engineered and. Um, Years ago, uh, people uh, in, in this particular church, and most churches, would oftentimes use the altar to come and to pray if they felt like they wanted a more intense experience with God. They just wanted to be closer to the altar, closer to the cross in that regard, or they felt it was important to make a kind of public confession of their faith in some manner. So <clears throat> as a board, we discovered that because they have been re-engineered and they're a little taller. That when people come to kneel, it's more effort for some people to get up off the ground. That age does that to you, you, know. I mean, you know, you don't even have to be old; you can just be old football injuries or whatever. But so we purchased these kneelers to put in front here, um, and uh, and so people can use them. And uh, we really, you know, as the, as elders in the board, we really want you to always feel free before the service, after the service, by yourself with somebody to come forward and to kneel at the altar and to use these. They're, they're really very helpful. And so we just wanted to explain to you the origin. Now, I will tell you this. I was so enthralled with them that uh, I bought three for my home. And I put one beside each bed in my home. So, um, uh, so that it's, it's just much more comfortable when I pray uh, beside the bed it's just a lot more comfortable to kneel on these, and so if you know since we're by ourselves in our house, we have basically two guest rooms and so if, if people come to visit us then they have a kneeler uh, beside their bed as well, and they can use that in that manner too so if any of you if any of you are interested in getting one for your home, which I think would be a great thing um, there is no more appropriate response when you enter into the presence of God than to be on your knees. There's no more appropriate response when you enter into the presence of God than to be on your knees. And when you pray on your knees, it changes the nature of your prayers. Rose, did you want to say something? <laughs> mm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's hard. Yeah. Because yeah. I laugh and I joke that that's my medicine. Yeah. But I'm actually in pain every day. I don't act because I'm it's depressing. Mm-hmm. But I'll never forget. I was so humiliated I couldn't come to church for over a month. I was ashamed. Oh. Because <coughs> all these guys helped me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you never you didn't need to be embarrassed about that. Yeah. No, not at all. So, uh so there you have an example of somebody who wanted to kneel but had difficulty kneeling because they, you know, because it was just too high, it was too uncomfortable. So Yeah. yeah. So w- without without being I, I I want you to know we're not switching religions. <laughs> we're enabling worship, okay? <laughs> so just in case any of you are concerned about that, no, I, in fact, I, I can't read. In, I don't know of any religion that has the that that has the uh, the sole authority to kneel versus other religions. I think I think God wants all Christians to kneel. So, pretty sure about that. Oh, Rocky. Uh, it made those nice too, we have okay, so Rocky wanted me to mention to you as well. When we put the kneelers here, then I had some people say to me, well, does that mean then that if we come forward for communion that we could kneel at the altar and, and receive communion at the altar? And the answer is, yes, you can do that. And when that day comes, we'll, we'll show you what we think is the best way. Ed Noggle put some little communion holders. He, he made some out of wood and attached them to the side, to the back end of this uh, kneeler, so that if you kneel there and you take communion, you can put your cup right there. You don't have to worry about where to put the cup or anything like that. So, um, so if that's a more intense, more uh, profound experience for you, we, we want that to happen. We really want to be a church of prayer. We really want to be a church that has the right heart when it comes to all this stuff. And so... Um, and so we're, we're trying to facilitate that for you. And I'm embarrassed. I am embarrassed as a pastor. Why didn't I think of these things? I've been here for almost 18 years. Why didn't I think of these things before, you know? I wish I had, um, but I didn't. But I'm thinking about it now. We are thinking about it now, and we're trying hard to make it happen. So um, just so you know, that's, uh, that's a part of what we're wanting to do. So if you would like to... Uh, uh, come forward and take um, communion at at the at, or at, the, uh, at the altar we 'll we'll show you what we do next time we have communion we 'll show you what to do in regard to that. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. okay all right well, good well, one final thing <clears throat> did you notice how beautiful our uh, our TVs are huh So somebody donated to our church enough money for us to put two big TVs and two small TVs in. And the images are much more clear. It's not your glasses. It wasn't your eyesight. It was, it was the projector and the screens. So um, they've spent a lot of time. Um, and I think that maybe not today, but I think I'd like to have those people who installed that because it really involved a lot of work and a lot of technical ability. Um, so maybe next Sunday I'll have them come forward because I really do want to acknowledge uh, the work that they did and uh, how much of a blessing it is. Uh, for us to have uh, these new features. So, uh, again, we, we want when people come in here to have the best possible experience, the best possible. You know, the Lord says, uh, Paul says uh, in relationship to when we do things for the Lord, that you do, uh, uh, that, that, that the work that you do, you do it as if you were doing it unto the Lord. The work that you do, you do as if you were doing it unto the Lord, as if you were doing it for God himself. And so we really want what we do here to be done with as much excellence as possible. So anyway, a lot of information this morning, but uh, it, it, there needed to be those updates and you need to be informed in that manner. So uh, this morning then, <clears throat> one final thing. do Please do not forget those sign-ups back up there we have a whole bunch of sign ups after church please go back and see if any apply to you one of the big ones would be the constellation of prayer for holy week we don't have too many sign ups for that yet so you know that in that 24 hour period we'd have to ha- we'd like to have at least each of those hours covered in that 24 hour period of prayer so if you would be willing to volunteer for some prayer back there for that constellation service and then after that we meet here that Wednesday night for The Elder Service and uh, Frank Schuster will be speaking that that Wednesday evening, so just to let you know about that as well. Okay, all right. So I'm on part two, and really I think finally and completely this last section on John 15 verses 1 through 8 and then 16, and in that uh, that particular passage of "I am the vine, you are the branches." it is, it is one of those biblical passages that is uh, whose principles you will find replete throughout the whole of Scripture. It's that seminal. It's that important. It's that significant. And so I spent a good bit of time on what it meant to be uh, the Father, for the Father to be the vine dresser, Jesus to be the vine, and for us to be the branches. And then this, these last two Sundays, including this Sunday, um, implicit uh, overtly uh, in that particular passage is also um, are also some declarations about judgment about what happens to people when they don 't uh, produce uh, that and that judgment uh, it appears as if it applies both to Christians and to non believers and so i 'm spending time on that this morning and because I think it's, um, you know, I think we've lost, uh, I think we've lost the significance and the importance of what it means for God to judge. Because he does do that. And he judges because he is holy and because he is righteous. And because he is the law keeper. And that uh, sin must be accounted for. Uh and uh, how we live our lives, uh, we receive both rewards in, in that regard, and, and so that's important too. So um, so judgment for believers who resist pruning, those that do not produce fruit are cut off and thrown away and cast into the fire. So we read that in these two primary texts, and I'm just going to read over them quickly, then we'll move on from there. We have the vine dresser's judgment and they come from John 15 to every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So this branch is connected to uh, the vine. And the branch that does not produce fruit is taken away. The, the word there literally means cut off. That branch is cut off. Taken away is, is a more gentle way of saying it, but the word really means cut off, right? And then John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So last week I gave you three primary reasons why there is judgment. And so as I reflected upon the same passage of Scripture this year, or this week, uh, it seems to me there are two more, and so I just want to show you, and if you're taking notes or whatever, um, then you can you can get the, the sense of why this judgment is there. So we can go to verse 8 in John 15, and, and where he says, And by this my Father, the vine dresser, is glorified, number one, that you may bear much fruit, so that you will be two, my disciples. And then verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you, three appointed you, that you should four... Go and bear fruit, and that five, your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So there are these five reasons according to how we are rewarded or how we are judged. And the five reasons are the Father must be glorified, that it must be obvious that we are a disciple of Christ. So the next slide shows a list of these should. Yeah. The Father must be glorified. It must be obvious that we are a disciple of Christ, that we are faithful in our being appointed. We are, we are faithful with that appointment. And in that appointment that we go. And bear fruit. In other words, we initiate some behavior, some activity, we we have some plan, some strategy to go. Like anybody who goes somewhere but doesn't have a purpose for why they're going, we call those people crazy people, right? You know, like everyone has a purpose about why they do something, and those purposes can be good or they can be bad. But the point is that you go and you go to bear fruit. So that there's a strategy, there is a plan to produce fruit. Everyone here, in their appointment by God, the vine dresser, that that there is this that that there is this requirement to produce fruit, and not just fruit, but much fruit. And that the fruit must be substantive and enduring. The fruit has to last. So there are different degrees of fruit. Some fruit that's produced, even in agriculture, just doesn't last. It's just not very good fruit. But the fruit that we produce is substantive and enduring. This is why we are rewarded and why we are judged on these five things. Now there may be more, but I think in that particular text, this is this is these are the requirements. So, <clears throat> if you think this through, I mean, really, in your seats right now, what kind of numerical value would you attach to each one of these? Say one through ten. On a scale of 1 to 10, where would any of us be in giving glory to God from our own perspective? On a scale from 1 to 10, how would we rank in terms of it being obvious that we are a disciple of Christ? Really, I'd encourage you, if you are taking notes now, or take a picture of that. And then maybe print it off or something like that. And then in your own quiet place, sit down and on a scale from 1 to 10, put a numerical value beside each one of those. And then really just ask yourself the question, why is this? Why is this? Why Why the number whatever that number is for how I glorify God? Why the number for whatever it is about how it's obvious that I am a disciple of God? What holds me back from 10 versus, say, 6 or 3? What numerical value would you give to yourself in terms of your appointment that you are following through what God has called you to, and how He has called you to live faithfully in your life. What numerical value would you give to that? Is it a five? Is it an eight? Is it a four? How about your fruit? The production of the fruit associated with your life that only you could be responsible for. Do you remember I spoke um, from... uh, the text in Matthew, I think it's uh, it was later on in Matthew uh, uh, on the withered uh, fig tree where Jesus is going in. Uh, it's the time of the triumphal entry, and he sees a fig tree there. He wants fruit, and the fruit isn't there, so he curses the fig tree because it disappoints him. There was no fruit associated with that fig tree, and so it was cursed. So, I'm pretty sure there were times in my life when God looked to me to see if I had any fruit in my life that he could participate in and uh, there was not not very much fruit there. So, what do I need to do to produce fruit? More fruit, enduring fruit. Good fruit that's substantive and enduring. Don't you think... Like, let me just really... If we all ask ourselves these kinds of questions on a regular basis, don't you think it would change the quality of our faith? Don't you think it would change the nature of, our, of this church? I absolutely think that. And this isn't one of those things where, it, you know, it's my effort to try and make people feel guilty. Not at all. It's, these are diagnostic questions that I think are good for everybody. And we do this in our lives all the time. We are always asking ourselves diagnostic questions. What do I need to do to earn more money? What do I need to do to grow a better garden? What do I need to do to have better clothes? What do I need to do to, uh, to, um, uh, to uh, advance in my, in my profession? We're always asking those diagnostic questions. Yet somehow, diagnostic questions associated with this we get really uncomfortable with. And I would encourage you not to be uncomfortable. Be uncomfortable with maybe the answers, but don't be uncomfortable with the questions. Now, judgment is a very real thing. A very real thing. Maybe some of you are familiar with the judgment that's called the Great White Throne Judgment in Revelation 21. So in this next slide, I'm sorry, verse, uh, uh, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we see this where we have this Great White Throne Judgment, and on the left in that judgment is the Book of Deeds. So when I read this text, he'll talk about the books that are brought out that record everything that anybody has ever done or said. You know how they say, like, once it's on the Internet, it never goes away? Well, once it's in the book, it never goes away. It's indelible. It's there forever. And so all of the deeds that we've done are recorded in this book. So I'm not real excited about that that book in particular. I mean, I have, I think, some good things in there, but I don't have as many good things in there as I would like. And I have some bad things in there, and I probably have way too many bad things in there than what I would like. On the right is the book of life. And so in the book of life, it's record, our names are recorded. And anyone whose name is in that book is invited into eternity and heaven forever and ever, but if your name is not in that book, then we are eventually we are cast into the lake of fire, eternal death. This is what the text says. So, in in this particular te- text, we read, um, "And him that is Jesus, who was seated on it." From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So this is the removal of the first heaven. That is to say, the temporal heaven, how we look at the sky and the universe, and we see that's, we call that the heavens, that, that, is, that leaves. That's gone. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, the books of deeds, the books of life. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, and those were written in the book of deeds. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Now, John includes the word the, the, the phrase "the sea," because it was believed that what if you died in the sea, you were irretrievable, that, that, it, that, that you were gone forever. And so even the sea then had no power to hold the people who were to be judged. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So the people who were already in hell were given up to be judged. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And there are two kinds of judgments that come from that. There are two kinds of judgments during the great white throne judgment. We read about the first one in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Here we read where the Apostle Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, For we believers, and that's parenthetical, I put that in there, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there are a couple ways in which some people interpret that context. I interpret that as Paul talking to the Christians in Corinth saying, look, do you not know that you will be judged to what you have done in the body? Whether it's good or bad, you will be judged and you will be rewarded accordingly. And so, so, you know, in that reward, uh, you know, uh, John also talks about how that... uh, are crowns that we receive in heaven, that, 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 they are, uh, that there are stones that are put on those crowns based on the kind of life that we live, that there are rewards that indicate the kind of person that we were while on earth. And I, I used to say to some people, who just were really wonderful people, really godly people, would say, you know, you you probably need to exercise your neck muscles because when you die and go to heaven, there are going to be a lot of stones on that crown of yours and you're going to have to find a way to hold that up. So everyone here in this room, when God reads from the book of deeds, we will be rewarded too by what we have done, by the kind of fruit that we have produced, and it will be indicated on the crown that is ours. But there's a second kind of judgment before the great white throne of judgment. And Jesus talks about this at length numerous times, but here in Matthew we read, Matthew 14, verses 41 through 42. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, that is, unbelievers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there is, there are those two basic kinds of judgments that will take place. But look how that overlaps with John fifteen six, the "I am the vine, you are the branches" passage. In John fifteen six, it says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. So with this, we see this as a theme, both in the Gospels as well as throughout the epistles. There is judgment, and judgment can be an ominous and terrible thing. It would seem, in some cases, both for the believer and the unbeliever, but for different reasons. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That is the final removal of death and hell itself. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, um, I want to remind us where the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, this. Therefore, my beloved, <clears throat> as you have always obeyed, so now only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There, there is judgment for the believer. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in terms of what it means for the believer, especially from a theological context. But I'm just saying on some level, there is judgment for you and me as well. There are rewards and there will be non-rewards. But here's what Paul says later on. I mean, right after verse 12 in Philippians. Now, understand, Philippians... Of all the churches in the New Testament that the the Apostle Paul planted and maintained and, and invested in, the church of Philippi was probably his favorite church. It probably was the healthiest church. It was the church that caused him the most joy. And yet he's saying even to them, he is saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but how much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 12. For it is God, the vine dresser, the vine, who works prunes in you, the branches, both to will and to work to produce fruit for his good pleasure. Do you see the overlap there? It's really stunning. So here are three additional biblical texts about judgment for the believer that I think will be helpful to us. And I'm going to have to go through these a little fast just because time is fleeting. As I do, I want to note something. I am not talking about the fleeting and useless efforts of works righteousness, but rather the enduring and powerful evidence of Christ-likeness. I'm missing a line there. I am not talking about the fleeting and useless efforts of works righteousness. Not, no one can work their way into heaven. It doesn't exist. It's all about grace. But rather, I am talking about the enduring and powerful evidence of Christ-likeness. And so, it would seem as if that if Christ-likeness is missing, then real faith is missing. Without Christ-likeness, there is no real faith. Without Christ-likeness, we should be concerned, very concerned about judgment. Without Christ-likeness, we have a difficult time producing fruit. To the degree that we have more Christ-likeness, we produce more and better fruit. So we read in Galatians 5, 16-25, so this is uh, the, the uh, church of Galatia, where anyone whose character is of the flesh versus the spirit will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's talking to the church in Galatia. And he says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Another parallel to John 15. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed. That word opposed means adversarial. Like how we live apart from Christ or how our flesh, our humanness tries to control our life that lives in opposition it is adversarial to the things of the Spirit. So, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed. They are adversarial to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are not under, so if we are led by the Spirit, we, are not, we don't fall under the curse of the law. So then he gives some examples, beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is kind of like the short list, but the truth of the matter is that everyone in this room has participated in at least one, if not several, of these kinds of things over the course of their lifetime. And if we haven't participated, we've thought about it. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that word do means to practice, to live by, to demonstrate, that there is evidence of. If there is evidence of those things on a regular basis, if that's how we live our life, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to believers. And he's saying to those believers, look, if these things are a part of your life, If this is what you do, if this is your practices, and understand that people who practice these things, people who do not repent of these things, people who have these things, there is no Christ-likeness, then you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, But the fruit, the things or the nature of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law so that we do not fall under the curse of the law when we practice these things. So that the law of sin and death does not apply to those who live by the Spirit only against those who practice the things of the flesh. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So that we We don't just manage those sins. And that's that's the rub. That's where where many believers are. They figure out how to manage their sins so it isn't so bad rather than crucify and kill the sin so that it doesn't exist at all. That's the distinction that Paul is making here. So, the evidence of those who belong to Christ, the true believer, is that they have crucified or are crucifying the things of the flesh in their life. So we're just trying to figure out, through Christ, how to kill the sin in us. And you think, well, that just sounds so like so kind of like pious and spiritual. Well, let me just ask you this question. How many people have you had in your life who embodied a particular sin That made your life miserable. Their sin made your life miserable. And I'm talking even believers. Do you know how miserable people's lives can be when a parent is just really insecure? And they live out their insecurities. They do not have the confidence that they should have in Christ, and they visit that on their kids. And their kids pray that somehow they don't use these words, but this is what they want: they wish that part of that kind of sin in their life would die. They wish the alcoholism would die. They wish the the um, the judgmentalness would die. Haven't we all thought that? And that's what he's talking about. Crucifying the sin in our life so that it just doesn't exist. And then if it doesn't exist, then it can't be expressed in other people's lives that cause them misery and pain. So if we, are led by, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That is, let us be led, guided, follow, imitate the things of the Spirit. So the key text is, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That if we practice these things, the fleshy things, then we may imperil whether or not we enter into the kingdom of God. <clears throat> now... Um, this reminds me again of Matthew 7. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. For every tree that does not bear good fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Compare that to John 15, 6. Thus you will recognize him by their fruits. The second text I want to read to you is Matthew seven twenty one through 23. This is on the Sermon on the Mount. These are among the last words that Jesus speaks in his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is widely regarded the most, uh, the, the center of uh, the essence of Jesus' teaching in terms of what he calls believers to. And basically he's saying that in this text, uh, where there is no evidence of authentic Christ-like discipleship in faithfulness and works, that um, we should be very concerned if there is no evidence of authentic Christ-like discipleship and faithfulness in works. So, I'm just going to skip ahead a couple slides here because I want to go to verse 21 where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will, who obeys, who surrenders, who submits to the Father, he is the one that gets into heaven. Now you may think, well, well, because he goes on to say, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do, and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus said, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers, of lawlessness and you think well they were driving out demons and they were doing great works how's that possible there are many many beautiful gorgeous huge churches buildings that were built in the name of Jesus and many of those people who served on those boards, those vestries, those uh, uh, whatever they were, served on those boards, served as elders, whatever. Not because of their faith in Christ, but because of their, of their position in the community. So they, by and large, ascribed to the Christian world life view. So that was their philosophy, that was their ideology, but it wasn't in their heart. And so they gave a lot of money and they gave a lot of resources to build those magnificent structures. But they didn't know Jesus. And they might stand before Jesus and say, but we gave so much money. We did Look, we worked hard. We built this magnificent edifice in your name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me. You workers, you you workers of lawlessness. Now, in that particular text, he goes on to talk about how, you know, those who were hungry and those who didn't have clothing and all that kind of stuff, that, that those same people had nothing to do with those kinds of people. And he said, and he said, when you didn't do anything to them, then you didn't do anything for me. So be sure. Be sure that your faith isn't a philosophy. Make sure that your faith is a relationship. Make sure that your theology is biology. That it isn't just a bunch of do's and don'ts. But it's a relationship, a loving relationship, where you want to become like the living Christ. The next one that I want to get to is the book of Revelation. Revelation. Revelation three fifteen through sixteen, where believers and the church uh, demonstrate that they are tepid, complacent, and largely indifferent to God's will and, obe- and his obedience to and obedient to his purpose and plan in their lives. So, this is the famous or infamous Church of the La- of Laodicea that many of us have heard about, where where Jesus says, John records. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, with that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That word spit literally means vomit. So I, I'm assuming that we've all done that. And in doing that, it's just a really uncomfortable experience. And our body is purging, rejecting, expulsing something that is undesirable. And so what God is saying is, if you are complacent, if you are tepid, then you risk being spit out of my mouth vomited out of my mouth. Now, there's a context to that. I don't have time to go into that context. It's just a sort of a geographical kind of thing. But but by and large, Laodicea did not have a a very good water source. And there were two other water sources. One was a hot springs. The other was a pure uh, uh, source of cold water. Both of them located around Colossae. But Laodicea, for all of its wealth and its ability, just didn't have a very good water source. And so anything that they did have had to be brought in by aqueduct. And by the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. It wasn't cold. It wasn't pure. It was contaminated. And he's saying to them that if you are lukewarm, you are like that water, not desirable, and you're contaminated, and I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, these are lukewarm Christians. Lukewarm Christians are people who practice cheap grace. This phrase, cheap grace, became famous by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about cheap grace. And Brie, this is on the next slide. Then we'll go back to this original slide. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. God doesn't bestow it. We bestow it. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But lukewarm Christians practice cheap grace. Lukewarm Christians practice saviorship, not lordship. Lukewarm Christians are distracted believers. Boy, if there was ever a time in human history that that it's become easy to be distracted, it's this time. Our lives look, hear me, hear me. Our lives are dominated by the tyranny of the urgent, not the tyranny of the important. Our lives are dominated by the tyranny of the urgent versus the tyranny of the important. We confuse what is urgent with what is important, and when we do that, we are massively confused. Because just because something screeches really loud doesn't mean it's really important. People who are lukewarm Christians believe authentic Christianity can be conveniently lived Christianity. If I've learned anything in the pastorate, it's that I cannot be a pastor and live my life conveniently all the time. I'm not saying I never have conveniences, I'm just saying. Lukewarm Christians produce little to no fruit. And lukewarm Christians resist the pruning of the vine dresser. So when he wants to come in and cut something out that's really not producing, we're like, hey, I want that. Leave it alone. Right? And we we have to submit to that. We just have to say, okay, you know better than me. So, this text then, John 15, verses 1 through 6, and then I conclude it with verse 16, really is just one of those texts that has all these applications. And it is so very important and vital for us I want to be clear again that we have people in this congregation who believe who come from a more reformed context and they would say yes but based on what you're saying it sounds as you know it sounds as if and this is what they would say those people were never Christians in the first place and if you are reformed and that's what you believe then maybe maybe if if some of this applies, then those of us who are within the reform context ought to re-examine whether or not we're really believers or not. Maybe we're just cultural Christians with a Reformed slant because we find ourselves doing these things that we should not be doing. But if any of us are Wesleyan or Arminian in our faith, and they would believe that it is possible to reject the Holy Spirit and to lose your salvation. And if these things are evident, if the authenticity of Christ's likeness is missing in our life and if we're not producing fruit, then if you are Wesleyan or, or Arminian, then maybe, maybe that person might be in danger. But maybe, maybe all of this is more reflective of the kind of love relationship that we have with Christ. Because if we love Jesus enough, all that other stuff kind of disappears. Maybe it's just about how much we love the God of our salvation, or don't love the God of our salvation. And out of that love, maybe it all boils down to how much we really want to serve, or we don't really want to serve, because we, there's just a worthiness issue for us. But I'm saying to you, It's a good time in the life of everyone here, including myself, to re-examine where we are on all of these things. To go back to that earlier list that I showed that I encourage you to take a picture of. And maybe just to attach that value. And then in prayer, ask the Lord to speak to you. Say, help me to take this from a four to a ten. Help me to take this from a five to at least a nine. Help me, Lord, to do that. So that my life can be a life that produces fruit that's enduring, that gives you glory, that demonstrates that I am a disciple of yours, that I'm producing fruit and much fruit, that I live the kind of life that you've purposed me for, that I'm doing those things because I love you and I care about you, because you've been so gracious to me, you've been so patient, who here can say that God has not been patient with them? Because if I were in charge of my life, a long time ago it would have been one of these things, I'm sure of it. But he's been so patient with me. He's been so patient with all of us. Because he believes that we can be people who produce much fruit. That it's enduring because we love him. Do you love him? And will your love allow you to submit your life, to surrender your life, to be obedient to his will? I want us to be encouraged Because God gives us all of this awareness that other faiths don't do. Because he loves us. So, let me conclude in prayer. And then we'll, uh, do we have uh, benevolence this morning? Is Is that right? So we do have a benevolent offering, so we'll be passing that around this morning as well. So.